0: Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the xenophobic Brent and the (laughs) xanthic forest. Xanthic?
1: Yeah, what's that mean?
0: Xanthic is uh, relating to the color yellow. I'm calling you yellow.
1: Oh. Uh, You're calling me yellow? It's still better than xenophobic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is. Being a coward is definitely better than being xenophobic. (laughs) Although I would prefer if all of our xenophobes were also cowards. I think that would be (laughs) be nice for the best. And on that lovely note, we have a few announcements uh, for everyone. First, we have a new patron. Asinine Genius. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you. And if you would like to also be an asinine genius, (laughs) you can head on over to patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary for only $1 a month. You support the podcast. You'll get a shout out for $5 a month. You'll get access to our monthly bonus episodes. And because of our scheduling mishaps for September, we have two coming your way for October. So now would be a great time to get on board that $5 a month patronage, and get those bonus episodes. We've got three, and by the end of the month, we'll have five. Yeah. Also want to remind everyone that the best place to find news and information about None Dare Call It Ordinary is to hit us up on social media. Specifically, we're on Twitter, at NDCIO. We're also on Instagram, at None Dare Call It Ordinary. If we talk about any kind of photographs or video on the podcast, we'll throw it up on Instagram so everyone can take a look at it. And if you want the most up-to-date news, those are the best places to go. And lastly, if you could please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.
1: OK. And so now that we're finally done with the hellish um, Alex Jones series, what are we talking about today? A new a new thing? Yes.
0: Thank God. Yes. We are done with Alex Jones. Thankfully, it's a bit rough, especially uh, those later years. Lots of uh, lots of hot takes from Alex. Yeah. And so we figured let's talk about something that is both very silly and <laughs> frankly, doesn't really matter at all. Specifically, <laughs> we are talking about the phantom time hypothesis, most famously, quote unquote, promulgated by one Herbert Illig, a, a German thinker. I'm going to call him a thinker.
1: And a thought leader, if you will. Thought leader. Oh,
0: yeah. A thought leader. Absolutely. He is a phantom time thought leader. And the main crux of Illig's theory is that what we think of as the history between 614 AD and 911 AD is all a lie. (gasps) Those years were added to the history books by a teenage emperor and a wily pope in the Middle Ages. So really, 297 years have been tacked on to our calendar. So that means you think it's the year 2019? It's actually the year 1722. I bet you didn't see that one
2: coming. Shit. We haven't even even achieved our independence yet.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, America can't be destroyed by design if America has never been designed in the first place.
0: Exactly. Alex needs to get on this business. Yeah,
1: the answer to 2019 is 1722.
0: (laughs) It is. It most certainly is. So let us start with the man himself, Herbert Illig. Illig was born in Bavaria in 1947 and received his doctorate in German in 1987 with a dissertation on Egon Friedel, an Austrian journalist and writer. Also, I should note right up front, a lot of the research for this episode was provided via Google Translate. A lot of the primary sources are in German, so Mm. take that as you will. I did the best to make sure that things were getting translated correctly as much as I can not being a German speaker, just figured I would have that warning right up front. Illig worked initially as a systems analyst for a bank before he made history revisionism his
1: full-time job. All right, the original Germaniac. Oh, no, 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 that was
2: was Howard Hughes. (laughs) Oh,
0: yes, and actually, it's funny you mention that. You mentioned germaniac, which if uh, if our listeners remember our cancer quackery episode way back, uh, that is referring to the new German medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that one of the boosters of the phantom time hypothesis, a Dr. Nimitz, is also a big booster of the new German medicine. (laughs) So I don't know if I don't know if Illig himself is a germaniac, but Dr. (laughs) Nimitz most certainly is nice. Now, Illig's first forays into alternative history were in line with perhaps the greatest pseudo-chronologist of the 20th century, Emanuel Velikovsky. Now, Velikovsky is guaranteed to get his own series sometime in the future, But the key takeaway about his views is that the Earth suffered some serious natural catastrophes as a result of interactions between Mars and Venus. I think there's different ways that plays out. Basically, a bunch of space stuff happened, and it had very explicit effects on humankind. And he thought that because of these natural catastrophes, that he had to reconstruct an entire chronology referred to as the new chronology, you know, not very original, I have to admit. <laughs> and this included changing the chronology of ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, and Israel. And as a result of this influence, Herbert Illig became a member of the Velikovskian Society for the Reconstruction of Human and Natural History, from 1981 to 1989.
1: See, I would have liked to be a member of that revisionist history society too, but unfortunately, my personal revisionist history omits the entire 1980s. So it's. Oh, it's not that's work for a me. good point.
0: Yes. Yeah. So what you'll have to do is either this society existed like yesterday or <laughs> 300 years ago. Those are probably <laughs> the only options for yeah, you. It makes sense. Along with being part of this society, Illig also published the velikovskian inspired magazine, Vorsight. Fruzeit Giegenwart, nice, which translates to prehistoric, early, present, and he also edited the journal Zeitensprung, which translates
1: to Time jumps. Ooh. Uh, see, I'm not I'm not familiar with those. I only subscribe to prehistoric late future mm, and yes. also Trump jumps. Oh. That uh, that yeah, that last magazine is uh, one where it just skips the entire Trump presidency. So it's, <laughs> oh, it's
2: kind my. of uplifting. Ooh. It's nice. Ooh, that, that would be wonderful. Yes. Wow.
0: While Illig is most famous for the phantom time hypothesis. He was interested originally in ancient Egypt. He initially proposed a chronology that would excise 2,000 years from the official record. Specifically, the Great Pyramid of Cheops, which was finished in 2560 B.C., Turns out it was actually finished sometime in the first millennium B.C. I bet you didn't know that.
1: Does that also change the fact of what we recently learned from our Alex Jones series that the CIA built the pyramids with the help of the ancient aliens? I don't know if that's addressed. Yeah,
2: I'm not sure. Could it be that perhaps the CIA from another place in the galaxy came here in starships that ancient people would call chariots?
0: Yes.
2: Yes, Answer, I'm going yes. with yes
0: on that one. <laughs> okay, good. But yeah, I think um, the our, the official none dare call it ordinary position has to be, we just don't know. We just don't know yeah. yet. That's something for further research.
2: As And as we always say, do your own research. Yes, do
0: your exactly. own research, exactly.
2: No matter how unqualified
0: you are. It's <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So before we dig into what's actually going on, we should first mention what those lame historians and archaeologists say what's going on for this section. I'm just going to pretend the official chronology is correct, so I don't have to keep saying the alleged or the official over and over and over again. We're just going to assume that for this next section.
1: Right. Just sort of like we pretended that the Holy See wasn't vacant in the series on our series on set of agontism, Exactly. Like
0: that. That's exactly right. correct. So Illig's Phantom Time Hypothesis, it focuses in on Europe during the Middle Ages. That's his focus. And I think to really understand why he proposes the theory that he does, we have to understand what those dorky historians have to say about this time period.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that official historical record, which Eric von Daniken proves is wrong in his seminal masterpiece, History, is wrong.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I like that title, though. I would have have preferred History Isn't History. Just cancel it a lot. (laughs) Or
2: or maybe History Is History, as in it's
0: out. (laughs) So we need a villain. There's a villain in Illig's Phantom Time chronology, and that villain is Otto III, who lived from 980 to 1002 and was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in 996... At the age of only 16. (laughs) And when I learned that the guy who is apparently the mastermind of this faulty chronology was 16, I kind of believed it a little more. I can imagine (laughs) some teenager pulling these hijinks, frankly. Oh, yeah. So let's get into just a little kind of basic background. What is the Holy Roman Empire? The Holy Roman Empire was treated by the Catholic Church as kind of the official continuation of the Western Roman Empire after its fall in 476. It began on December 25th, 800, when Charlemagne was crowned emperor by Pope Leo III. Merry Christmas, everyone. Your gift this year is
1: Charlemagne. It's
0: nice. Yeah, I, that's a pretty good gift, the continuation of the Roman Empire. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> big deal. Right. Otto III's grandfather, Otto I, revived the title in 962, thus beginning a continuous 800-year existence for the Holy Roman Empire. Because after Charlemagne died in 814, he had some sons, and there was some fighting and bickering, but it was kind of unclear. But once we get Otto I in 962, then we have a fairly clear time period where we've got a continuous Holy Roman Empire hanging out somewhere in Germany. But it's not just... Otto III we need to look at. We also need to look at the Pope. There was a whole lot of Pope stuff going on right after Otto III was crowned emperor in 996.
1: And if you're listening and you like Pope stuff, you may enjoy our series on Sedevacontism. You may. Where we find that the last legitimate Pope was Pope Pius Twelfth. Fun times.
2: Yeah, no, the, the key word is may because, may. of course, this isn't, you know, the real Catholic church or is it?
0: Yeah, because there's also we also need to have a shout out to the more hippie dippy set of a yeah. who actually push it up to John. The 23rd might be the last that's real true. pope, but that's kind of that's a little that's like yeah. the radical left wing yeah. of set of a Really? It's all about Pius the 12th. We all know. So what was going on in the pope world? Well, in 996, when Otto III was crowned, he had a Roman rebellion to deal with, led by the general Crescentius II. Great name, by the way. Yeah, good name. So Otto III comes in, he beats Crescentius II, and then he selects his cousin to become the pope, who names themselves Pope Gregory V. Now, Otto, he was feeling kind of nice, kind of charitable. So he decides, you know what, Crescentius, I'm just going to pardon you you know, I'll leave. It's fine. It's like it never happened. But once Otto left, Crescentius, he was back to his old tricks. He was back to rebelling, And he even deposed Gregory V and installed his own Pope, John Sixteenth, instead.
1: And they really needed their own Pope Michael back then, really. Let's just be honest. Oh, I think
0: almost all the popes were a Pope Michael at some point, yeah. because there's like we're juggling like four or five different <laughs> popes at this point, everyone's getting deposed and redeposed. It's, <laughs> it's really chaos.
2: Not only that, but I think we can always use a Pope Michael.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that's also yeah. fair. Yeah, I'm just grateful. I'm I'm really worried about who the next Pope Michael's going to be. I hope gonna be he had Phil. that one guy. It, it's yeah, his, it's got to be protege. Phil. Yeah, listen to our last episode of our set of a Contism series if you want to know who Pope Michael <laughs> is or could be and his Who mom. Phil is, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> that I uh...
1: yeah, she's older than him that might not work
0: yeah I don't know about that so Otto you know he's sick of this he defeated Crescentius he came back deposed his cousin so Otto returned to Rome in 998 he again made Gregory the V Pope and then he was done being nice he just straight up killed Crescentius II and Jeez. former Pope John sixteenth. he was done with all that mess you might think this sounds great for Gregory V fifth. But his second round as Pope didn't really last much longer because he died the next year oh, in 999, <laughs> which is real rough. You mean you become Pope and then you're deposed and then you become Pope again and then you die. That was, you know, that's kind of the last few years of his life. At least it was exciting. And this is when Otto installs Pope Sylvester II. In nine ninety nine,
1: it's funny too. So he was so close to making it to a thousand. It sucks. The year one thousand, which he missed the whole Y one K scare. So uh, that was a big yeah, thing. Yeah. Well, then.
0: I mean, it's kind of nice because I mean he still was pope in the year one thousand. I mean true. that is primo territory. Yeah, that's true. Or is it? Because you might <laughs> be thinking these are some real convenient dates. You know, the year one thousand. I mean, that's really momentous. And the reason all this happened in the year 1000 is because Otto III and Pope Sylvester II made it happen. Specifically, everything that we've described so far, all the Pope shenanigans, most of the Otto, Holy Roman Empire shenanigans, all of that stuff happened. It just didn't happen when you think it happened.
2: Oh, so Daniken and historians are both wrong. History is right, but for the wrong reasons. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Ah. Specifically, everything that we think of as happening from 912 AD onward, that all happened as we think it happened. It just happened 297 years earlier than we think it happened.
1: I'm following you, I think.
0: <laughs> I mean, just take like eighteen hundred, right? What we think of as what happened in eighteen hundred actually happened in fifteen oh three.
1: That makes sense. Basically. Yeah.
0: You just you have to subtract. Two hundred and ninety-seven years from all the dates after nine twelve. Got it. And if you're already confused, it's gonna get worse. That's <laughs> the worst part of this episode <laughs> is all this calendar stuff. They love the calendar. I'm, I'm just, already uh,
2: completely lost. I, I don't yeah, even know what's going on I'm anymore. Confused.
0: Just think, after nine twelve, you got to subtract two hundred ninety-seven years. Right. That's about it. Okay. All right. Now, why nine twelve? Actually, the reason is very simple. This is when Otto III's grandfather, Otto I, was born. It turns out, in the real chronology, Otto I was the first Holy Roman Emperor. That's really when the Holy Roman Empire was started. That's why 912 was an important year for this whole ordeal, for this whole conspiracy. Now, moving on, everything before 613 A.D., happened as we think it did and on the right date. So Jesus was born, you know, roughly, what, 3 B.C., give or take. You know, uh, what's-his-face, Socrates dies, like, roughly around 400 B.C., if I'm remembering my dates right. Basically, all that stuff, we're all right about. Everything we think happened between 614 A.D. and 911 A.D., either happened at a different time than we think, or very simply, just didn't happen at all. Mm. It was a complete forgery. Hmm. The most prominent fabrication in this whole conspiracy is the existence of arguably the most important European figure of the early Middle Ages, Charlemagne.
1: Ah, you know, this whole thing just makes me feel like I'm watching an episode of The Outlander. So it's just time time jumps.
0: that's basically, (laughs) it's just become... It's a it's a it's a it's a Zeitensprung for sure. (laughs) So now we know the theory roughly. But why? Why would why? Why would anyone want to do this? This is like flat earth level of a seemingly useless conspiracy. (laughs) And actually, the answer is pretty simple. Otto III and, you know, his entire crew, they were Christian um, millennialists. You know, so they had a vested interest in being the Holy Roman Emperor on the year 1000. Yeah,
1: I heard it was a good year.
0: It's a good year. Right. I mean, that's when all the fun stuff happens in the Bible. <laughs> Plus, Otto III appointed Sylvester II on what would be 999. So, Sylvester II also had a vested interest in perpetuating the fraud. He would be
2: Wait, the Pope. F- and, and flip flip 999 around, and that is 666. Oh, Download yeah. process right there. Download it just like process. I spotted it. Ooh, it's I'm scary. Great minds think alike. Ooh, chills.
0: And then lastly, because as we know, Charlemagne didn't exist. Otto I was the true first Holy Roman Emperor, and Otto III, he wanted to beef up his credentials. The Holy Roman Empire was only around for a few decades, and that's, you know, that's not enough. You want some legitimacy, and this is why he invented Charlemagne. He wanted this mythical, larger-than-life hero to serve as the true founder of the Holy Roman Empire, to legitimize Otto III's claim to the throne, and thus Charlemagne was born.
2: What a sneaky, sneaky guy. He
0: is a sneaky, sneaky 16-year-old. What can I tell (laughs) you? I, You know, they're sneaky. They're sneaky folks. Okay, so that is the basic story. 297 years have been added to the chronology. Otto III did it so he could be the emperor in the year 1000. All right, that's the theory. What's the evidence? I'm sure you're all wondering, what's the evidence? we got to bring it here. Well, we're going to start with the calendar. Again, it's all about dates. Brett Kavanaugh just ears
1: perked up a little bit.
0: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, if you are listening, um, (laughs) you should probably resign um, because you're a disgrace. Yes. But you're very <laughs> right that calendar, he would have been great. He should have been Otto Third, basically. I think he could have pulled this off because he loves the calendar so much. Oh, yeah. So let's get into some calendar history. Julius Caesar introduced the aptly named Julian calendar, in 45
1: B.C. God, what a narcissist. All time revolves around me. Yeah, yeah. E2,
2: Brent?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, Brent, it's so sad. <laughs> Sorry. He just wanted a standardized calendar. It's not a big deal.
2: Yeah, you might as well have just stabbed them.
0: Might. It's equivalent. It's equivalent. So one problem with the Julian calendar is that it actually does not line up with what's called the tropical or solar year. The solar year is determined by the time between, you know, solar events, like, for example, between two vernal equinoxes or two summer solstices. And the Julian calendar does not exactly match up to the solar year. Specifically, the Julian calendar runs 11 minutes behind every single year, or about 18 hours every century. Now, as we're going to get into Christians, the calendar is very important. They got to figure out when Easter is and pope gregory the 13th he was getting real sick of this calendar it was i mean this is several centuries afterward so these little few minutes every year are starting to really add up and so he decides to create a new calendar the gregorian calendar in 1582
1: that's also aptly
0: named yeah exactly like when you make a calendar you got to name it after yourself there's just no other option
2: all right then i'm going to make the forest calendar i mean there's not enough time in the day to do all the things i want to do so henceforth one day will now be what we call five days Ooh, Ooh. i like that yeah
1: a forest a forest night yeah my weekends off from work would really be 10 days off from work fuck yeah sounds glorious to me i
0: love it So when Pope Gregory had all of his nerds figure out, you know, how to deal with the discrepancies between the Julian calendar and the new Gregorian calendar, they discovered that 10 days needed to be cut out. And the way they did this was that the Julian calendar ended on October 4th, 1582, and then the next day officially became October 15th. So that's how they cut out 10 days of the calendar. It's kind of like Daylight Savings Time when it hits 2.59 a.m. and the next time is just 2 a.m. It's basically like that, but for 10 days.
1: So we're basically right now it's October 6th. So we are in that time frame that doesn't exist. It doesn't. So, yeah. So
0: if we were still on the Julian calendar, it would right. be like September 27th, give or take. And right here, this part of the story is where Ilig finds a problem. Because, again, the Julian calendar began in 45 B.C., and it ended when the Gregorian calendar took over in 1582 A.D. That is 1626 years, assuming, as I mentioned before, that we have an 11 minute error every year. That amounts to about 12 and a half days off or rounding up, you know, just why not? (laughs) That's 13 days. Hmm. So why was the correction for 10 days instead of 13 days? Hmm. That doesn't make any sense. Illig has the answer. It's that there was only 1,326 years between 45 B.C. and quote unquote 1582 A.D., Because of the phantom time that was added in, we were wrong about how much time there was between the Julian calendar starting and the Gregorian reforms. And so with only a 1,326 year difference, the 10 day correction adds up. Mm -hmm. Illig is right about this, like in terms of the math, he's right about how many years it would take to add up to a 10 day difference. Oh, so he's right about everything then. Well... Unfortunately for him, there's actually a much simpler explanation than a rogue emperor sneaking 300 (laughs) years into history. Let's
2: get out Occam's safety scissors Uh here. Yes,
0: once again, we're pulling out Occam's safety scissors. And the simpler explanation is that the Gregorian calendar reform was not a correction of the Julian calendar from its institution in 45 B.C., but rather the fixing of the vernal equinox on March 21st by the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That was the council. They did a lot of stuff, but one thing they did was decide that March 21st, That's officially when Easter was. I mean,
2: that's not the only thing they did. They also covered up that Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ were fucking,
1: (laughs) which is straightforwardly
2: true. And in the Da Vinci Code, do your own research, (laughs) do your own research, (laughs) which ripped off. I think it was called Holy Blood, Holy Grail.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Which is also not
2: true, but it is. But whatever.
0: But I mean, let's be clear. The calendar that that was way more important than you know. Who cares who Jesus is fucking? Oh, a lot you know, of Christians give his do. Privacy. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> this matters more.
2: Tom Hanks did. You're calling billions of people wrong, Dylan. Terrible.
0: So, what is up with figuring out when Easter is? Well, it's part of a long history of ridiculously complicated field of scholarship known as the Comptus. I
1: think that was also a popular NWA song called Straight Outta Comptus, right? Wasn't that the name of it? No,
0: (laughs) that's a different, that's a different thing. So the Comptus is all about figuring out when Easter is. That's basically, it's about charting what the solar year is. It's keeping track of all these dates. So we know we're celebrating Easter on the right day. And at the Council of Nicaea, all these nerds figured out that the Vernal Equinox, which is when Easter is supposed to be celebrated, was off from the day that it was officially celebrated. It was specifically, it was roughly two days off. So even though they were celebrating Easter on March 21st, the Vernal Equinox was happening on March 23rd. And so there was already a correction made from the original Julian calendar by the Council of Nicaea in 325. By the time 1582 rolled around, this problem was even worse than what the Council of Nicaea had to deal with. For the Gregorian reformers, the vernal equinox occurred on March 10th, even though the Julian calendar dictated that the vernal equinox and thus Easter still occurred on March 21st. Hmm. Thus, the Gregorian reform only needed to correct for 1,257 years which amounts to a little under a 10 day correction, which is actually what
1: happened. You know, all this time talk really makes me want to binge Quantum Leap. I remember that show. Oh,
0: that yes. I love Quantum Leap.
1: <laughs> you know, Mom is fact, a
0: big Quantum Leap fan.
1: I think I'm actually beginning to suffer, guys, from PTSD. And that is actually phantom time stress disorder. My head hurts.
0: Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh. I think I think if you had to work on the Comptus, you would certainly experience that because this is all very stressful (laughs) and we're just dipping a toe in it. So this is, you know, this is a very simple error in terms of the history, but it's even more embarrassing for Dr. Nymats again, one of the other boosters of the phantom time stuff. He actually makes this mistake explicitly. He does the math. He figures out the correct amount of days that would correspond to a 10-day correction. And he he correctly calculates that if you had to get rid of 10 days, that means that 1,257 years had to have passed. He subtracts 1,257 years from 1582, and he gets 325, But instead of recognizing that this is when the Council of Nicaea happened, he mockingly says this, quote, It seems, unbelievably, that Caesar introduced his calendar in 325 A.D. This is (laughs) unbelievable because by then he had already been dead for more than 300 years. (laughs) Wow, what
1: a Germaniac. Yeah, a little.
0: uh, He's quite a Germaniac. (laughs) A little bit embarrassing to take that Mm. kind of tone when you're so obviously incorrect. All right, but so that's that's a lot of calendar stuff. Let's move on. What's some more no, evidence? No, I want
2: more calendar stuff, goddammit. <laughs> well... I want more dates. I want more math. What about squeeze? You're going to have to
0: go somewhere else for all your calendar God damn
2: Goddammit. Another piece of evidence
0: that Illig cites is the popularity of Romanesque architecture in 10th century Western Europe. He asks... Why would an architectural style popular during the Roman Empire still exist several hundred years after the fall
1: of the Roman Empire? Yeah, because that Roman Empire style is too sick to die, yo. (laughs) It could be, that could be it.
2: Well, I mean, funnily enough, I guess if Hitler had won the Second World War and he and his architect, Albert Speer, could reinstate Roman architecture as they planned, then we'd have some uh, serious phantom time issues. I mean, Hitler came right after Julius Caesar, it turns out. Yeah, I think.
0: Yeah, <laughs> totally. definitely. Yeah. A, thousand, a thousand years from now, there would definitely be some a new school of phantom time people, and they would be equally incorrect. <laughs> Now, if Illig's Phantom Time chronology is correct, this makes much more sense of the presence of Romanesque architecture in the 10th century. Because, really, 10th century Europe is just 7th century Europe, which is only about 150 years after the fall of the Roman Empire. Arr. Dr. Nimitz gives a specific example of this. He cites the Chapel of Aachen, which was officially finished in 805 by Charlemagne, again... Doesn't really exist. Not real. And Nimitz cites a number of features which, if the official chronology is correct, simply vanished for 200 years, only to reappear in the 11th century. As you might have guessed, there's a few problems with this argument. What? One problem is that, as you might have recognized, there's still a bunch of Roman buildings around. And, I mean, you could think of all the examples of ancient Roman architecture that you could see right now in 2019, and so you can only imagine how many of those still existed,
2: even into the 10th century. And of course, there's Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. Yep. Oh, excellent. yeah. That, yep, e- exactly. you know, evidence that Las Vegas is some kind of strange distortion of space time.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that, that's true. And I, I, you know, I just drove by an ancient pyramids at the Luxor not too long ago. The ancient alien light beams were shooting out from the top. So, you know, it's legit. Exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. Here's a few other things to consider. Many, if not most, Romanesque buildings of the time were churches, and the Catholic Church has a direct connection to the Western Roman Empire, and thus would probably dig looking at churches with a Romanesque flair. Why such buildings appear mostly in the 10th century rather than earlier it was probably more an issue of money and stability than anything else. Something they don't really call it too much anymore, but there's a reason why you wouldn't be faulted for calling this the Dark Ages. It was a rougher time period. Not everyone's got a bunch of cash to put together to build a whole bunch of churches. Also, and it blows my mind that this never comes up, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was totally still around. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't fall until a millennia after the fall of the western roman empire. And so, I don't know, maybe they took a look at what they were doing <laughs> as an influence on how to build
2: their buildings. I mean, maybe. I uh, you're forgetting the simplest explanation of them all, Dylan. Ancient aliens, as we've yep. uh, had a Oh, theme that's going for
1: that. That's fair. That's fair, Dylan. If you really want to learn about history, I don't know what you're doing. It stands to reason you should just watch the history channel alone and get your information there.
0: Yeah, I I apologize. I'll <laughs> After this episode, I'm just going to f- finish this episode, but after this episode, that's how I'm going to do it for now on.
2: Dylan says this, but as ancient astronaut theorists contend, it's actually... <laughs> I, it. see a co- I, w-
0: I would love to see a history channel debate between phantom time people and
1: ancient oh, alien man. people. That would be the best <laughs> ever. Maybe throw in a Bigfoot proponent in there. <laughs> <them>. <laughs> why, why not? Or why remember, not?
2: Why not? Remember the Roman Empire doesn't count though because that's they're they're not brown enough. So they their <laughs> uh, stuff wasn't built by ancient okay. aliens. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. That's the way it works. And with the ancient aliens uh, genre, yeah. That's if it's that's white, fair. it was done by humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's clearly true.
0: As for Dr. Naimitz's specific example of the chapel of Asian. I can't speak to the specific architectural features that he cites. You know, I don't I don't know enough about the architecture of the time. But what I do know is that the chapel was used for hundreds of years, including by the Ottos themselves because of its association with Charlemagne. And it also underwent renovations from time to time. So it's perfectly possible that these anachronistic features that he talks about were simply added centuries after the chapel was first constructed. And so he doesn't really give any, like, citations, but the thing was around for a few centuries, so it's not like, oh, well, we're just going to be done adding stuff to it. (laughs) All right, so we got the calendar. We've got cool-looking buildings. Here's another problem, and this is more an argument against the official chronology. It's that they rely too much on documentary evidence. (laughs) Illig notes that there's actually very little documentary evidence of the phantom time period. Further, descriptions of people and events were left vague in the remaining documents that we actually do have. There was also a campaign at the time to copy ancient texts into a standardized script, which was called the Carolingian Minuscule. This was just like a standardized type, basically, so everybody knew what they were looking at. Because originals were destroyed after this process... Illig alleges that this project was more than capable of falsifying a vast array of documents while destroying the accurate originals. Oh. Okay. And Dr. Naimitz is even more stringent about this use of documentary evidence, saying, quote, Archaeologists are not permitted to rely on written sources, even if generations of historians have worked on those written sources. So what are we going to say about all this? One issue with this argument is what exactly, quote, very little documentary evidence actually means. Because in the 8th and ninth centuries alone, over 7,000 documents in the Carolingian minuscule survived, which seems like a lot. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like a lot of documents.
2: Well,
1: there's a know, lot of forgery going on. Here. Right, exactly. And thinking back to the Russia investigation series we did, it's not enough for, say, a real document fetishist like James Comey. That's James that's a good me. point.
2: That is a good point. He documented every cell in Trump's body. <laughs> now that's thorough. <laughs> Ooh, too much, too much
0: further Copying such documents into a new script by hand was literally the only option for the transmission of knowledge for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so if we're going to just say, hey, they could have been forgeries, I mean, we have to say that. Everywhere. Well,
2: I mean, the answer
0: is it is possible everywhere. So, you know, oh, that's <laughs> just, it's all forgeries all the way down. <laughs>
2: Could you imagine being one of these, pe- like one of the people that was committing these forgeries? You would be saying to yourself, ha! this is for the future historians. We're going to yeah. trick them. <laughs> I mean never see it coming. I
0: mean that like that's literally the story. I mean the story is out of the third is just sitting there. Right. You know, in his bedroom with I guess a Nirvana poster <laughs> in his room just like eh, 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 going to trip everybody up
2: so they think I'm so great. It's 7,000 <laughs> documents at least.
0: Yeah. It's a good prank. And then looking at Nimitz's suggestion that archaeologists never use documentary evidence, that's just false. Uh, I literally did a 15-second Google search, and I found a <laughs> recent article on Roman archaeology that we'll throw up on the website, and it explicitly mentions the written evidence for the time period in the name of the article. Oh, my now, God. Now, while it's true that, Archaeologists don't want to only use documentary evidence because, you know, that written evidence can be more indicative of the writer's bias than the reality of the situation. It's equally wrong that they just never use it. Yeah, it's all and, about
2: the preponderance of evidence. Right. And yeah. you look at all the evidence that's relevant. So,
0: all right, here is the last argument that the Phantom Time people use against the official chronology. And it's that really, we don't know. When anything happened, specifically Illig discusses all of the archaeological evidence that we have that's dated to the phantom time period between 614 and 911. And so, you know, someone could say, well, what about all this stuff? Like there's churches and there's coins and there's armor or whatever, and it's dated between these time periods. What do you say? And Illig's answer is simply those dating methods. They're all bunk. The main skepticism that the Phantom Time crew have is over two dating methods in particular, radiocarbon dating and dendrochronological dating. That's I mean, disgusting. my
2: primary skepticism for the Phantom Time hypothesis comes from everything else Dylan has said, <laughs>
0: basically. While I appreciate that, wait until you hear about what is wrong with these two <laughs> obscure dating methods. So let's give it like a brief a brief introduction to these. So radiocarbon dating works by measuring the ratio of carbon-14, which is an isotope of carbon, to its decay elements, specifically carbon-12. So carbon-14, it's in the atmosphere, and it gets absorbed by plants, and thus it gets absorbed by all living matter. So when an organism dies, it stops taking in the carbon-14, and the carbon-14 starts decaying at a regular rate into carbon-12. So you can look at an organism, you can look at a hunk of wood, and you can measure the ratio of carbon fourteen to carbon twelve. And based on the time of decay, you can guesstimate how old that thing is.
1: Yeah, you know, sorry, I do have to agree with uh, these phantom time people because radiocarbon dating method is bullshit. We oh. all know the only accurate dating method is Rb dating, which is radio biblical dating. Oh, I think is radio
0: biblical. Uh, is that where? What I you yep. listen to the Bible over like a CB radio. Is that what that kind of dating is? <laughs> yeah. It's specifically yep. the it audio be, version. Yep.
2: Okay. I thought you're going to say, I thought it was going to be rhythm and blues
0: dating. Oh, <laughs> I like that. That's way better. <laughs> So that's radiocarbon dating, but there's also this dendrochronological dating, and that's the use of tree ring data. So you've probably heard about how you could you know, measure time by the rings of a tree. As trees age, they add rings, and you could count the rings to figure out how old stuff is. And it's a remarkably consistent method for telling you how old a chunk of wood is specifically.
1: Yeah, and also, wasn't that a part of a Beyonce song? This is like, If you date it, then you should have put a ring on it. I think that song was, yeah, I think that song was about dendrochronological dating methods, if I'm not mistaken, I I think you're right. I think you might be right.
2: Well, another thing that I'm right about is that Kanye West was totally right that Beyonce is a much better dendrochronologist than Taylor Swift. (laughs)
0: I think, yeah. I don't think (laughs) anyone, I don't think
2: anyone's going to disagree with that. That reptile, as we learned from Sherry Schreiner. (laughs)
0: I forgot Taylor Swift is a reptile. That's why she can't do it. It Shape-shifting reptile. Reptiles, they don't like trees, so they can't do the dendrochronology. That's sad. Now, radiocarbon dating is corroborated by comparing its results to dendrochronological results and seeing if they match up because you have a hunk of wood. It's both organic, and so you can do the radiocarbon, the C14 to C12, and it's also... A tree. It's wood. So you could do the dendrochronological dating methods and see again if they match up. Now, Dr. Niemitz provides a very nice quick summary of the source of his skepticism. Quote, this shows the fact that they com- they're corroborated with each other, that each specialist refers to the neighboring discipline to solve his problems of dating, a typical case of circular reasoning. Nobody looks over the whole situation, and therefore nobody is astonished that the same structural problems occur in different disciplines. Basically, radiocarbon dates are corroborated by the use of dendrochronological dates and vice versa. There is simply no way to objectively determine if these methods are sound that isn't circular. Now, How can the archaeologist respond? Nimitz thinks that there's literally only one way to respond, and sadly, it doesn't work very well. Quote, the most common objection to this idea says that methods of scientific dating are infallible and beyond the danger of circular reasoning. That's like it. That's all they got. (laughs) That's all they got. Now, you probably agree that these dating methods are not infallible. I mean, we're just not that good. Luckily, there are other responses that could be given. (laughs) And simply put, we know when a lot of stuff happened. So even the phantom time people believe that. So all we need to do is find wood from the times that we know stuff happened. And then we can use those hunks of wood to figure out the correct kind of timeline, the correct chronology based on the tree ring data. And these would be these would serve as benchmarks to build these dendrochronologies. A useful source on how this works is Stephen Dutch who is a professor emeritus in geoscience at the University
1: of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Oh, you just triggered me, Dylan. What the hell? Why'd you have to bring sports in this episode? It's hey, perfectly fine that's... without you mentioning the Green Bay Packers. Me and my family are <sighs> Chicago Bears fans. God damn it. That Bears. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm
0: sorry. I had no idea. So in Dutch's article, he addresses criticism about dendrochronological and radiocarbon dating. Specifically, how radiocarbon dating of timber at Herculaneum, which was a Roman city destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, and from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This allows the calibration of dendrochronological methods, uh, but this is just a small sample. So again, we know when the eruption of Mount Vesuvius happened, and so we have a date for the destruction of Herculaneum, and thus we have a date for all the wood there. And plus, there was also wood as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, the scroll part of it. And again, we know when those were written. And so these are just two benchmarks we can use to build a chronology based on tree ring data. Also, radiocarbon dating is also based on the physics of carbon-14 decay, which is something we can verify independently of dendrochronology. It's not like we have absolutely no idea how that works. That's why we use it in the first place. You know, again, I don't want to say this is all infallible. You know, there's a lot of complications here. But Nimitz is just completely wrong to suggest that nobody looks over the, quote,
2: whole situation. No, it's infallible or nothing, Dylan. Infallible or I mean, nothing. It's the only
0: two options. I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear that. <laughs> just edit it out. And one, one useful resource on dendrochronological dating in particular and how people and how it's developed over the decades is an article titled Oaks Tree Rings and Wooden Cultural Heritage a review of the main characteristics and applications of oak dendrochronology in Europe by Christoph Heneka, Katarina Kufar and Hans Beekman and this is again we'll link this to we'll link to this article in the website this is a review article from 2009 and it covers the whole history and the cutting edge of dendrochronology And it talks about, you know, the ebb and flow of how it's worked and how these chronologies are constantly being revised and updated and how there's different chronologies, how they have to pay attention to specific forests in Europe and how they develop based on the environment that the trees are in and the type of tree. So, again, this is something that a lot of very smart people are thinking very hard about and making sure that they're doing correctly. And one fun fact that's relevant here in this article is that one dendrochronology stretches back unbroken to 8480 BC. Damn. We have samples of wood unbroken between now and 8480 BC in Europe, now are, which is incredible. Are those incredible.
2: the oldest known hunks of wood?
0: um that i don't know i I haven't dug
2: that far into it some young earth theorists say the earth is nine thousand years old that's about right
0: that's a good point that's a good point yeah it's there
1: i'm also shocked that they haven't had graffiti put on him already
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's banksy that's banksy's next prank he's gonna spray paint paint all the pieces of wood (laughs) in this (laughs) dendrochronology. what a douche An even simpler way to think about this is that if we're really going to just accept this simple skepticism of these dating methods, it would require throwing out results from scores of scientific disciplines, and it would require throwing out the dates from basically the whole of archaeology. And, you know, so I'm just not going to, I think very simply, there's no reason to really consider this.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we can throw out the, the entire climate science to... You know, <laughs> look at the, yeah. the weather changing. We could definitely do I that mean, but,
0: I mean, but let's be real. I mean, we totally should. Yeah, of course. So what does Nimitz have to say about all these advancements in dating methods and all this work that's going into it? One thing that's strange about the main Nimitz article about this is that he only talks about this work from the 1970s or earlier. And the article that he wrote was written in the mid-90s. That's a whole 15 years of dating work that he's not talking about. And he has a very strange answer to like, to, to why he doesn't consider that. And it's that he tried finding out about it, but failed quote. Why not quote more recent test results after 1980, a Hamburg dendrochronologist responded to my request for recent literature in December, 1994 today sequences and dates are no longer published because there exists the danger of abuse Hobby dendrochronologists earn money by dating the example timbers of houses for private clients with unreliable methods. So laboratories in Europe and worldwide exchange their dates without publishing them. Hmm. And so <laughs> this is literally how Nymitz investigated the advancements in dendrochronological dating methods from 1980 to 1994. He literally just asked one dude... And didn't bother to check if anything that guy said was right. That was literally (laughs) his research methods. And so, in short, if one is simply going to just assert that all dating methods are faulty, and thus we don't really know when anything in history happened, I can't really help you.
2: Well... This highlights the importance of doing your own research.
1: Yeah, you (laughs) got to do your
2: own research.
1: I'm not going to do it for you. It actually gives me kind of a good idea, too, for a business. Um, An online dating service for geologists called Radiometric Dating.
0: (laughs) Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Uh Oh, stupid. I bet they would all love that joke. All right, so so far we've been just cramming the truth of the phantom time hypothesis just directly Mm -hmm. into your skull.
1: (laughs) Trepanning you, if you will.
0: Yes, we are trepanning you with knowledge of the phantom time, but we're fair and balanced here on None Dare Call It Ordinary. So what is the problem with the phantom time hypothesis? What is the counter evidence? Well,
2: bring out Shep Smith then.
0: We got to bring out Shep. Yeah, this is the Shep Smith role. (laughs) One big problem is astronomy. So over the course of history, various astronomical happenings have been recorded by a variety of civilizations. Human beings, they love looking at the stars instead
2: of working. I mean, that so was one, before the days of massive light pollution.
0: Yes, absolutely. We we can't do that anymore. Thank God we can just help make our capitalist overlords... <laughs> You know, surplus value. Thank (laughs) God we can't waste our time
2: looking at the fucking moon. No, much better. (laughs) Time is much better spent on Twitter and Xbox, basically.
0: Yes, absolutely. So on the basis of what we know about astronomy, we can go back in time and check these recorded dates for these various astronomical happenings and make sure and see if they add up. Like, you know, do these things add up when they should have happened? And it turns out they do. What? But if 297 years was
2: just mysteriously added to the chronology, then there's no way we should be able to do this. Are you saying, hold on, are you saying the phantom time hypothesis is false now? Is that what you're trying to tell me? (laughs) It might
0: not be right.
2: Oh, Oh, no. All this time. (laughs) I thought we were leading up to. Of course it's true.
0: I I know. I You know, but we got to be fair and balanced. All right. So let's have some concrete examples. The Tang Dynasty in China recorded solar eclipses in 756, 761, 879, and 888, along with partial eclipses in 702, 729, 754, and 822. It turns out that these dates are compatible with current astronomical software calculations, and so... Mm. That makes sense, given everything we know about the stars.
2: Could it be that the Tang Dynasty was in on the conspiracy, though?
0: Well, I mean, they could be. Who knows? Yeah, who
2: knows? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm keeping it fair and balanced. I'm the the counter no, to I, your I, Shep Smith. I appreciate right
0: that. That's what we need here. <laughs> yeah. Further, there's also recordings of two solar eclipses made by Pliny the Elder in 59 A.D., and Photius in 418 A.D. The Tang Dynasty astronomers also recorded the appearance of Halley's Comet in 684, 760, and 837. Again, all these dates add up, according to our contemporary astronomical
1: knowledge. Is that the whole thing you just said, did you just read a Neil deGrasse Tyson Twitter thread verbatim?
0: Yeah, I did, actually. I, um, okay. I, I so. asked him, you know, he said his tweets are not copyright and so he said we can totally use them on the podcast cool again if we were really off by 297 years and we tried to retrodict these eclipses and these appearances of Haley's Comet then our retrodictions would also be off by 297 years but they're not hmm. but but let's make it fun let's you know let's have some fun again fair and balanced and let's yeah, assume, let's make it true let's make it true. <laughs> And let's assume that all these numbers that I've been giving you, all these you know dates, let's go with Forrest's idea. Let's see, these are all forgeries. Yeah, and they are. And they are, but there's still a problem. What? How did the forgers in 700 AD have any idea when to date these events? Ah, I got no answer. Halley's comet, for example, is particularly problematic since nobody recognized that it was a single astronomical body that was returning every 76 years. All right. They were keeping track of it, but they didn't really know what it was. They didn't recognize that it was coming at regular intervals, and they didn't know it was a comet.
2: No, okay, I I admit defeat. You win, Shep, this time.
1: Yeah, uh, plus I'm also just skeptical of comets in general. We all know they're angels making their rounds. And by angels, I mean ancient aliens, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, that goes without saying. The second big problem for the phantom time hypothesis is that it is extremely
2: Eurocentric. Oh, here's the so, SJW regressive left portion of the podcast. This is go. the SJW Here portion of Should the podcast. You know what, guys? I think I'm going to actually quit the podcast because I feel very oppressed by <laughs> your um, talking about Eurocentrism is a very, uh, you know, derogatory way. I'm
0: sorry. I'm sorry. But we've got to talk about it. We've got to press forward. All right. So I mentioned earlier the Tang Dynasty. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, the Tang Dynasty, they were giving all these dates between 614 and 911. So what about all the other stuff outside of Europe that was going on? Between 614 and 911. Yeah, How does like, the phantom time hypothesis deal with that?
1: Yeah, like specifically the year of Satan, which happened during this time, 666. Yeah, that's that, that's
0: the roughest one. That is. So here are a few highlights. Um, There's that whole, you might have, I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's this whole Islam thing. What's no, Islam? Never heard of it. Yeah, so there was this guy, Muhammad. Huh? He died around 614 A.D., and by 9-11, the Islamic Caliphate was near Roman Empire levels. So if the phantom time hypothesis is true, that would mean that we went from the death of Muhammad one year, and then the next year, Spain was conquered by the Islamic Caliphate. And that seems real extreme.
2: Well, no, it just means the Islamic Caliphate was super efficient.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to one year. And I mean, at that point, I feel like, you know, good for them. I yeah. mean, I feel like, Yeah. I think it's you impressive. do deserve it. If you
2: can build a um, Roman Empire-level uh, empire in that amount of time, I think That's, I should just become a Muslim at this point. Yeah, yeah Just do it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think clearly Divine Intervention had some role.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Or they were ancient aliens.
0: Oh, again, <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of theory swirling around. This
2: is a very ancient aliens-heavy <laughs> episode, I think. Yeah, yeah there's,
0: there's a lot of conflict happening that needs to be
2: worked out, just not here. How could it be that in one year... The Islamic Caliphate became like the Roman Empire. How could it be except for extraterrestrial intervention?
0: Exactly, exactly. So, besides that whole Islam thing, um, <laughs> this time also corresponds to the late classic period in Mesoamerican history, ending with the collapse of the Mayan civilization. Again, all of this would have to be wiped out if the Phantom Time people are correct.
1: Yep. Hashtag 2012. Never forget.
0: Never forget. <laughs> Never forget the time, the year that came and went. It went. Never forget the year
1: <laughs> that the
2: end, the year that the uh, that all things ended, and also when Terrence McKenna was completely debunked as well. So, oh <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. And besides all this, there's the whole history of Anglo-Saxon England, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Byzantine Empire. So, <laughs> in short.
1: Huh. Oh, that.
0: A lot of stuff was going on that would have to be changed worldwide. And it is utterly preposterous that a teenager could pull off a forgery of this magnitude.
1: I think at least it happened in a movie, right? Wasn't that the plot to Home Alone 3? <laughs> like,
2: uh, pull, instead, pull, pull,
1: of, pull instead of instead hey. of setting
2: traps for the burglars, he was for he was creating forgeries out of papyrus. He, he, he's writing the forgeries, and it's going. Dun, 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 dun.
0: Yeah, that was the more art house edition of Home Alone, I believe. Now I said there's no way a teenager could have pulled this off, or could he? Oh, because Doctor oh. Nymus thinks that these actually aren't problems. In fact. Dr. Nimitz thinks that this feature that, you know, there's this missing time in Islamic history, in in indigenous American history, et cetera, et cetera, is a feature rather than a bug, because it turns out Ooh. if you dive into the history of all these subjects, you find gaps in the record. And I need to prepare the listeners for what they're about to hear, because You know, as I've talked about before, my fiance, I've talked to her about all these topics, you know, before. And I talked to her about this section in particular, and she said it was the dumbest thing she had ever
2: heard. (laughs) (laughs) Even dumber than all the other things we've covered on this podcast so far. We
0: did four episodes on Alex Jones, which I discussed with her extensively. (laughs) Still, this takes the cake and i want to say (laughs) that right up front because what you're about to hear is my honest attempt to summarize the arguments that dr nimitz is putting forward so here we go we're going to start with the byzantine empire and what nimitz calls but as far as i could tell no other historian calls the reform of the themes so what are these themes Themes are what the Byzantines called their main administrative units of the Byzantine Empire. So it's something like a state. The themes were established sometime in the middle of the 7th century as a result of fighting with the Slavs and fighting with the Muslims. And this system was fully formalized by the 9th century. There's just one problem with this chronology that I've just given you, apparently there are no written or archaeological records of this reform. There's simply no <laughs> evidence at all. <laughs> so how does Dr. Nimitz propose to deal with this? Well, he claims that there are two groups who discuss the reform. There's two perspectives. One group thinks that since the fundamentals of the reform were already worked out in antiquity, basically nothing happened between 600 and 900 <laughs> A.D., <laughs> in the Byzantine empire. But that there's that's not the only group. There's another group okay. who thinks that there was a significant reform, but it happened so slowly <laughs> that it produced no written or archaeological record. <laughs> now, Nimitz comes in with a third option, the phantom time option. And its solution is very simple. It's that this period of time simply does not exist. <laughs> Now, there's actually a fourth possibility that I I want to bring to your attention, and it's based on a very quick Google search, which revealed the number of books written by university presses about this topic. My guess is that yes, my guess is that those books are based on all the written and archaeological evidence we have of the time period. And so, my thought is that Nimitz might just be totally full of shit when he (laughs) says there's no evidence of this time period.
1: I mean, I guess that's an option. Yeah. You're just showing your
2: bias. It's just biased. It could be. It's just, I
0: just want the listeners to consider this perspective. (laughs) Now we're moving on. We're moving on from the Byzantines and we're going to Persia. Mm -hmm. And specifically, we're talking about the Shahnameh. Now, the Shahnameh is the national epic poem of Iran. It's like the Aeneid is for Rome and the Iliad and the Odyssey are for ancient Greece. The, and the, May, way the
2: and the way the Sopranos is for Americans.
0: Yes, specifically American <laughs> Italians. <Yeah. laughs> now, the Shahnameh was finished in 1010 AD by the poet Ferdowsi. And the Shanameh is an epic poem dealing with the ancient history of Iran. But there's one problem. You and your problems are hist-
2: always finding problems.
0: <laughs> no, this isn't, this isn't my problem. This is Nimitz's problem. Yeah. Nimitz says the problem is that the history in the Shanameh oh. ends with the last Persian king, Yazdegerd III, who died in 651 AD. So why would a historical poem and 350 years before the poem itself was finished. <sighs> oh my God. And Nimitz has a simple answer is that it didn't. We just got the chronology wrong. Oh, oh. Okay. now I know what you're thinking. That's not a very satisfying argument. And you might think that because you actually know something about epic poetry, because this is actually completely standard. The Iliad, for example, was written roughly 800 B.C. It details the Trojan War, which happened in 1200 B.C., or 400 years before it was written. The Aeneid is another example, which was finished in roughly 19 B.C., But also takes place in roughly the Homeric cinematic universe, as I like to call it, which again would be twelve hundred years before the Aeneid was finished.
2: Wait wait so Austin. Dylan are you telling me that epic poems can actually like be about different time periods other than the time period that the epic poem is That doesn't
1: seem to make sense.
0: That is what I am saying and this is so also So are you
2: saying when George Lucas made Star Wars that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far far away it can't be that Star Wars was made or Star Wars exists in <laughs> 1977 in no. which he created <laughs> Star Wars?
0: No, uh we need a phantom time <laughs> hypothesis to deal with star wars
2: okay (laughs) that's the only option there's no other option no other options i accept
1: isn't that wasn't their name isn't one of the star wars named phantom something what phantom menace there we go phantom Phantom
0: menace Menace. the phantom time menace and the problems just keep stacking up we're gonna stay in persia and we're gonna look at the umayyad paintings of kosro the second nimitz notes a painting on a palace from the umayyad caliphate dating to around 725 AD. This painting depicts the Persian king Khosrow II. Two things are strange about this painting. One, Khosrow II died 100 years before this painting was made, and also, any figurative paintings would be out of place in an Islamic society, which prohibits figurative paintings. Khosrow II also appears on Arabic coins from 695 AD, Again, several decades after his death. So, again, there's a similar problem. It's impossible for paintings and coins to feature the likeness of a figure that died decades or even a century beforehand. So how do we solve this problem? (laughs) Well, (laughs) Nimitz borrows an explanation from Manfred Zeller, who is another phantom time uh, thought leader. We can call him. (laughs) And Zeller actually has a split phantom time Ooh, hypothesis. Fancy. So for him, there is a phantom time between 583 AD and 661 AD, which would be 78 years, and then another between 750 AD and 968 AD, which would be 218 years.
1: Yeah, double the phantom time, double the fun, I always
0: say. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So the painting and coins with Khosrow II were not out of place at all. But what about the whole Islamic prohibition on figurative painting thing? Like, so even if we get the date right, isn't that a problem? Well, that's actually really easy. As Naimitz himself tells us, quote, probably Islam did not spread until 10 centuries ago. Probably. And that's it. That's all he says. Just, yeah we just added 300 years to the length of how long Islam existed. You know, no biggie, no, big deal. no biggie. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple problems as you might have guessed. <laughs> More <with> problems. <laughs> More problems. And these are my, these are my problems. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, one I is up, really. as alluded to above, people make art, about older stuff all the time i know it's hard to believe but it's totally true
1: wait well you know i thought all those paintings of jesus and the apostles were painted at the scene of the events i I thought that that was like a live painting
0: i don't think that's right okay in fact i bet you have coins in your pocket right this second that depict people who lived
2: a long long time ago Uh, let me check no i got I got a coin here with Donald Trump. Oh, my God. One cent with Donald Trump. I got five cent with Obama. <laughs> George W. Bush on 10 cents. So you're wrong. <laughs> oh, baby.
0: man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I might be wrong about Forest coins, but if you've got like a regular penny with like Abraham Lincoln on it.
1: The second greatest president.
0: I guess the only explanation is that we need a new phantom time hypothesis in which the U.S. started, you know, like in the 80s, basically. <laughs> But there's actually a more interesting problem here, I think, and it's that it's actually just false that Muslims and all Islamic civilizations prohibit figurative art. In fact, there are some really cool paintings featuring Muhammad himself, which is kind of famously someone you're not supposed to depict. Um, But there are paintings of him with some interesting stylistic features where, for example, they actually don't show his hands His uh, so he's wearing very long sleeves, so you just see the you know sleeves like he's a little kid almost. And also his head is on fire. (laughs) Just so cool.
1: That's pretty metal. If some dude looked like that, I'd follow him too. That's badass. Like dude, you you have a fire for face. (laughs) <laughs> and you just needs a tailor to fix those sleeves. That's it.
0: And it's all. Yeah, it's also real fun with the sleeves. It's like a weird like mix, It's like childish and
1: also scary.
2: And Dylan, are you are you telling me that all variations and sex of Islam are not all just completely exactly the same and monolithic? Is that what you're trying to tell me?
1: I,
0: that's,
2: <laughs> that's what I'm trying strange. to tell oh, you. Okay. I got to admit. I'm sorry.
0: And we uh, will be sure to throw these up on our Instagram account because these paintings are super cool. Also, I would really recommend there's a book that came out just last year titled The Human Figure in Islamic Art by uh, Kujeld von Volsack and Joachim Meyer. And it's a whole book about this subject, about figurative paintings in Islamic civilizations. And so it's just totally wrong that there is no figurative art in Islam. But there's also like a really big problem here. It's him bringing up this fancy split. Phantom Time hypothesis, and it's that if you're going to suggest that the Phantom Time hypothesis can solve all these problems in these various historical research programs where there seems to be missing time, you can't invoke contradictory Phantom Time hypotheses to solve each (laughs) one. It would have to be the same one in each case otherwise the whole thing just falls apart No,
2: we need a dialethist <laughs> phantom time hypotheses yes
0: yeah i guess we do just where it's contradictory and that yeah that's great and so on that note on muhammad being depicted with long sleeves and his head on fire <laughs> that is our episode on the phantom time hypothesis so Forrest, brent What did you learn in today's episode? What most stuck out
2: to you? I learned that whenever you're dealing with subject matter such as this, always keep a pair of Occam's safety scissors close to you because it might come in handy.
1: That's true. Absolutely. I I think it's funny, too, because I remember you texting one time, Dylan. You're like, hey, do you mind... Um, you know, adding some of the dates to our Google Calendar from when we're recording stuff, and then you tackle this, which is all about calendars. <laughs> like, so much calendar talk. The, um, the calendar the, stuff was the
0: hardest part of this. <laughs> was figuring out like the correction stuff oh my because God. there's so many. Because all of these, they're one, they're nerds, but also they're like stupid nerds, <laughs> and so they get all the they, they get all the times wrong, oh, and so God. when you're trying to like. When you're trying to figure out like how much time they would need to make the corrections, right. you're basing it on their stupid idea about how much like how much of an error there is, like how slow the Julian calendar was compared to the solar calendar. And so you're getting the wrong times and it's just you're getting real frustrated. That was my experience. I, I couldn't deal with all this yeah, calendar
1: I, I would
2: have tapped out if I was assigned this episode. I would just be... <laughs>
1: What you, do you enjoy about it, Dylan, besides the calendar part?
2: Besides the calendar part. And um, all the problems, all the problems you and found all
1: the, with it. Yeah, there's problems. a lot of problems. Charlemagne didn't I exist. I mean, That's really,
0: Charlemagne didn't exist. That's really interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, really, though, I, I'm going to have to say the problems. That was really because I was working on it, and um, Herbert Illig's books where he talks about this are all German. There's no translations mm. of them. And so a lot of that was secondhand. And so, thankfully, Dr. Nimitz wrote his kind of main, like, survey article about this in English. And really, his arguments, just the idea that you can't have art and you can't have coins and you can't just, in general, have depictions of people who died decades earlier, just <laughs> blows, it blows my mind. I think... <laughs> My fiance specifically said that this is like a sixth grade argument that's being made here. It is just so utterly ridiculous. In fact, it was
2: so dumb. I was kind of scratching my head for a moment thinking, it's not, it couldn't, I'm missing something. It can't be that dumb, can it? Yeah.
0: (laughs) That was exactly the experience I had. And we're going to link, we're going to link to this article. So if you feel I have misrepresented Dr. (laughs) Nimitz's work. I would more than happy. I would be more than happy to be corrected because I had the exact same experience that Forrest mentioned. I mean, where I'm like, no, really. I was I was thinking this is for real a second,
2: dumb. like, wait a minute, this, it can't be this dumb. It really can't. But it, yeah, sure enough, sure enough.
0: And it really is like after all the calendar stuff that's like really complicated and also kind of silly. It's just straight up. <laughs> this dude lived a long time ago, and they possibly make a painting of him. <laughs>
2: i pull a penny out of my pocket what abraham lincoln's on it how could it be
1: (laughs) it's just so much evidence everywhere it's it's
0: so So much evidence (laughs) everywhere look this
2: penny was minted in 2019 what the fuck
0: (laughs) there's phantom times everywhere and so on that note we are done Thank you for listening to Nun Dare Call It Ordinary. You can find us on Twitter at NDCIO, Instagram at Nun Dare Call It Ordinary, and send us an email at Nun Dare Call It Ordinary at gmail.com. For only $1 a month, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary For information on all our episodes, as well as links to our YouTube channel and Discord server, head over to our website at non call it As always, we ask that you please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, or wherever your podcasts are
2: served.